The following is a production of the people of Mars Hill. For more information, visit pomh.org. Good morning. If you have your copy of Scripture, go ahead and turn to James. We're looking at the third chapter, last few verses, and we'll go into chapter four next week. While you're turning there, what an exciting thing to see the baptisms, and I hope that you're continuing to share the gospel wherever the Lord has given you the privilege and the opportunity to do so, and that you are discipling. And remember, discipleship is not something that always happens after salvation. A lot of times it happens before. So that coworker or that friend of yours at school, uh, classmate, teammate, whatever it may be, you never know how many of those people will be open to just sitting down and going through a study with you. And that might be the open door for them to receive the gospel. So God's given us many opportunities and I hope you're taking advantage of those. Let's jump into God's word right here. We're gonna begin in verse 13 of chapter three. It says, who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So James is continuing this idea of helping us to understand what it means to have a genuine faith, what it means to, as uh, Paul talks about working out our salvation with fear and trembling? What does it look like to live out a genuine faith? Not just a salvation experience, not just praying a prayer, not just getting baptized, but the transformed life that should follow any kind of decision to turn ourselves over completely in totality to God. So I ask you a question that James asks us in this passage right now. Do you consider yourself to be a wise person? Now be careful before you answer that because it's a trick question. Because if you actually answered it, yes, then you might be the person exactly that James was talking to in the beginning. But if you're a person that says, I am absolutely not wise, and if it weren't for God's word, I would completely mess up my life, then you are in a good position for everything that James is talking about today. Because in today's passage, James compares this earthly wisdom to a divine wisdom. Now, remember, James is considered by many to be the wisdom literature of the New Testament. If you go back into the Old Testament, we categorize the books of the Bible uh, systematically. In other words, you have the first five books, which are the books of law. Following the books of law, you have the history books. And following that, you have wisdom literature. And then you have the prophets, major and minor. So over and over again, we see that categorized throughout our Old Testament. Well, in the New Testament, even though ours are somewhat categorized, much more loosely than the old, the one thing that is missing is a category of wisdom literature. But James fits that. Because if you notice, James is a lot like like Proverbs. It's a lot like Psalms. When you read through it, he talks about a wise man is like this. A foolish man is like this. Over and over again, he compels us to go back, not just to the Old Testament, but the teachings of Christ. He seems to have centered on the Sermon on the Mount, although he does touch on several other of Jesus's teachings. And he seems to be 
compatible with Paul's teaching. Although Paul was talking to a different group of people and he was worried about them adding something to the cross for salvation, James is saying, but yes, when the cross transforms you, you will be transformed. And so again, we see this as a very important piece of literature for us to understand both as understanding the whole of scripture, but also for our own life as we build the foundation of our practice of Christianity. So this passage goes back and, and further clarifies what James has already talked about in chapter one, verses five and eight. Again, remember when we finish chapter one and roughly some of chapter two, I told you that James is just gonna keep going back to those ideas. He lays out his thesis there in those first few paragraphs and then he goes back and revisits those and expounds upon those. And that's exactly what he's doing here today. This time he does it with great warning though. Wisdom is what he is focused in on and there are two types of wisdom. Now wisdom is attained a lot of times, people think, through hard work. People think of wisdom as something that we pursue. So we take our knowledge that we've gained and then we give some uh, opportunity in lab or in life to learn that knowledge. And how does that knowledge, those facts interact with each other? And that's our understanding. And then we arise to that moment where now we are wise and we know how to use those facts with other people or now to use those facts in certain situations. Well, uh, for a lot of people, that's the way they think of it. Wisdom is knowledge perfected. It's what we know that other others don't know. And once we've achieved wisdom, we believe that it gives us this advantage over other people that we can use for our own personal happiness, for our own advancement, for our own joy. Life is all about the pursuit of happiness, even at others' expenses. So if you want something and you have the wisdom and the means to get it, by golly, you should go and get it. That's the way the world thinks of wisdom a lot of time. There is a kind of human wisdom that also has an appearance of godly wisdom, but in fact is not a godly wisdom. You see, it's easy for us to be fooled into thinking that our knowledge of the Bible, our knowledge of theology, or our biblical standards of right or wrong constitute wisdom. But it's possible to know God's word without knowing God. And that's not wisdom. That's just knowledge, that's knowledge of facts because wisdom doesn't actually take root in our life until the word of God is met with a relationship with God. And that's what James is talking about to us today. Godly wisdom is a gift of the Holy Spirit. Godly wisdom is rooted in scripture, but knowledge of the Bible without a relationship with the spirit can create this worldly wisdom, this facade of spirituality. See, the first thing we have to understand is this, is God is the one who gives us wisdom. Wisdom isn't something we earn. Wisdom isn't something we attain. Wisdom isn't something we grow to. And that's where we have that misconception. The scripture is very clear. Wisdom is a gift. It's something that is given to someone. Remember, James has already talked about this in chapter one. If any of you lacks wisdom, he doesn't say study harder. He doesn't say memorize more scripture. He says, ask God. He gives it, he has it in abundance, number one, and then he gives it graciously according to his character. So get, uh, wisdom is a gift from God. It's not something that we can harness ourselves. Wisdom is not just about knowledge. It is about discernment and a sensitivity to the surroundings that we find ourselves in. It's a sensitivity to other people 
what they're going through, what they're thinking. We're not to use our wisdom for our personal gain. We're not to use our wisdom to pursue happiness because why? That very wisdom tells us that our happiness can't be gained from the things of this world. Therefore, if we have true biblical wisdom, that is not going to be the things that we set out to get. You see, we get all of our joy. We get all of our happiness. We get all of our peace from God. And when we are full in God, then we're able to use that wisdom that he's given us for the good of others and for the good of the world around us as he pours forth from us his goodness to others. You see, many people think that they have wisdom or many people aspire to attain wisdom. But for most people, wisdom is not the true transcendent wisdom that James is speaking of in James chapter three here. It is the false earthly practical wisdom that only leads us to try and find the cravings of our soul here in this life. But James is very clear, false wisdom leads to jealousy. False wisdom leads to selfish ambition. And if you experience frequent jealousy, if you experience frequent selfishness, then that might be the very sign that you possess the false wisdom that James is talking about here. So what might be some of those signs? Maybe a friend of yours gets married, but you've been single for much longer than they have. And so you're jealous. Maybe your children have discipline issues and your friend's children are the gold standard of good behavior and you're jealous. Maybe you're jealous of the fact that that person who has this natural athletic ability, they never practice. They're just good at everything while you try hours upon hours upon hours and all you do is ride the bench. Maybe you're jealous of the friend who makes a lot more money than you and they put very little effort to it. And yet the very little money that you make, you work yourself to death for it. Maybe you're jealous of the classmate who aces exams and never has to study while you're pulling all-nighters one after another just to get by. Maybe you're jealous of the person who has a great body, never exercises, and who eats whatever they want while you're counting calories and hitting the gym every single day to see little to no gain from it. See, if we think about our lives, there's probably something. There's probably someone that we are jealous of. There are so many reasons in this life that we can find ourselves in jealousy. Jealousy is a sign that we are interested in our own glory over God's glory. Did you hear that? Jealousy is always a sign that we are more interested in our own glory than we are in the glory of God. And that's what we have to be so careful of. You see, jealousy is this thing that can come in and rot our souls. When we are jealous about something, we are saying, in essence, that we can't find all that we need in Jesus. That God hasn't provided enough. I need something else. So we're playing into that false wisdom of the world that James is telling us about. And what happens when we play into that, we play into it more and more and more, and we need more and more from it. So when we experience the jealousy of that false wisdom that James is talking about, we need to fight it. How do we fight it? By overcoming it with the love and the glory of Jesus. You see, it's the wisdom that he gives us. It's far better than anything that we will ever find in this world. 
How many of you remember not too long ago, it was James chapter one, uh, probably the beginning of this year, that we talked about the wisdom wheel. Do you remember that? The one thing that I claim that I'm like, yes, I came up with something and it has a figure to it and I have a diagram. Look at this. Now, I know it looks very uh, confusing. That's what academics are all about. You design things that look confusing, so you need somebody like me to explain it. That's a, that's a whole gimmick. You know that, right? All those little things you learn, somebody else has to explain it to you. That's why they make those things. So you pay them $1,000 to come and do a seminar. So this is my seminar. No one's asked me to do it yet. No one's paid me $1,000, but I got it ready when I get that phone call. All right. So here's what we have. If you can see that, which you probably can't see it really, really well, there's this, this, this difference of practical and transcendent wisdom. So when you think about knowledge and understanding and wisdom, at the very top, you have wisdom. At the very bottom, you have knowledge. And in between, you have understanding. Now, the way we think about it as human beings, just to refresh your memory from a few months back, we, devoid of God, we think that wisdom is attained by starting with knowledge, growing to understanding, and then achieving wisdom. And that's the pursuit that we have in our academics. That's the pursuit we have in whatever business we may be in, whatever discipline that we find ourselves studying. Whatever that thing is, we think, man, I'm just going to want it more and more. I pour my time into it. The the, the 10,000-hour rule, right? That's how you become an expert. When you spend 10,000 hours absorbing information and knowledge and understanding about things, that's when you are now wise. You are the expert of whatever that discipline may be. Now, the thing about practical wisdom is it starts with the knowledge, grows towards wisdom. That's practical, all right? That's also what I would say is earthly wisdom. I'll explain to you in a minute why. The other side of that, it's a biblical wisdom. It's a divine wisdom. It is a godly wisdom, and it's a transcendent wisdom. What does the word transcendent mean? It means coming from outside of, okay? Or as James says, there is a wisdom that comes from where? From above. So there's a wisdom that we don't have. We don't have it ourselves. We're not in possession of it. So it comes from somewhere else. It doesn't come from within. It doesn't come from our discipline. It doesn't come from our intelligence. It comes from above. It's something that's given to us. It's a transcendent wisdom. And so once that wisdom is given to us, we don't start with knowledge. We start with wisdom. And the wisdom then helps us to see the understanding, which leads us a knowledge to a knowledge of our culture, our relationships, how these facts are interworking within our own lives. You see, that's different because we all need a practical wisdom. In other words, we all need the things that we know to eventually work themselves out in the way we practice our life. The problem is this. If you start at the bottom with knowledge, it is your wisdom. It's an earthly wisdom. It's an incomplete wisdom. But if you start at the top and you start with wisdom, then you have the wisdom that God has already given us with the power of the Spirit to interpret and to know these things. And then this wisdom given to us creates an understanding of who we are and who God is. Now, as we come down to knowledge, we are absorbing those facts with a different worldview. We're absorbing those facts with a morality that's already been laid out for us. We're absorbing those facts, believing some truths that are already in Scripture that are foundational for how we're going to build from this point forward. Do you see the difference in that? Jesus even talked about the fact that anyone who hears these words of mine is like what? A man who builds his house on a rock. 
What is the rock? Did that man have anything to do with that rock? Did he get that rock? Did he bring? No, the rock was already there. The rock is the word of God. He who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is someone who has accepted a transcendent wisdom and then applies it in a practical way, the practical wisdom. He who does not hear these words of mine, who does not put them in the, hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like what? Someone who builds his house on the, yeah, there's no foundation. There's no foundation. So the practical wisdom that we've started with has no foundation. The whole thing is going to collapse because there's nothing that is sure and steady to hold it up. And that's exactly what James is talking about. The earthly divine wisdom is something God gives that becomes a practice, a foundation for our practice as followers of Christ. But if we don't start with that and we start with our own intuition, if we start with our own wisdom, guess what? Number one, everyone's going to start from a different place. And then you're going to end up with a society and a philosophy that we have today, like postmodernism, which says, hey, everybody's truth is their own truth. Whatever's true for you, that's great. That's your truth. And my truth may be different from your truth. And I have no right to judge you for your truth just because it's different than mine. Unless... Last, your truth claims to be the only truth, then that's not a truth at all. And we talked about before how postmodernism and its philosophy, as much as people loved it, it canceled itself out by its own philosophy because it says that anything that claims to be the only absolute truth is not a truth at all. And that is an absolute claim to truth to make that statement. And so while postmodernism was embraced by the philosophers very quickly, What was interesting about it that was different than every other philosophy that's ever entered into our culture, the culture of humanity, is that it made its way from the philosopher's mind to the earthly practice, the everyday practice of human beings in five years. It's the first time in history a way of thinking has ever made it from philosopher to practice in everyday life that quickly. Every other time, it had to be taught in the universities, and then it would be discussed, and then it would be written about in the scholarly journals, and then people would post, and then all of a sudden, a more popular book would be written about it, and then people would pass that book around. Well, you know what? By the time it got down there, if there was anything wrong with it, it had already been debated. It had already been debunked. But postmodernism made its way down to everyday life so quickly that it never had a time to go through any of this debunking, which would have obviously excluded it. So now what happens is we find ourselves in a society that has embraced this mentality. And this mentality is exactly the earthly wisdom that James is talking about. Think about the words that he uses. It's unspiritual. There's no God in it at all. God's not factored into that earthly wisdom at all. He actually says that it's demonic. I mean, these are powerful words that he warns us about here. Over and over again, he's bringing us to this understanding, to this conclusion that we have to understand that there are two things that we can be doing always. And one is always about the kingdom of God and one of them is about our kingdom. How do you treat the rich man and the poor man? It'll tell you whose kingdom you're building. What do you do with your words in certain situations? It'll tell you whose kingdom you're building. What kind of wisdom do you use in making decisions in everyday life? It'll tell you whose kingdom you're interested in and building. Man, I mean, James gets up in our kitchen here, doesn't he? I mean, he just gets into practicality and says, you can tell me you're a Christian all you want. What I want to see is what are you practicing? Show me how your transformed life says that something is happening inside of you that you can't explain from human terms. 
James chapter 3, this passage we're looking at, 13 through 18. It's a continuation, actually, of the warning that he started with in verse 1. He started with this warning to teachers within the church. And you know how we interpreted that even more broad. He said, not just teachers in the church, but anybody who finds themselves teaching in any capacity. It could be parents. It could be teaching your coworkers. It could be teaching Sunday school. If you are teaching in any capacity, and we all are teaching in some capacity, we need to heed his warning. Well, this warning here actually is also interpreted broadly. We have to think about what he's saying. Earthly wisdom will promote jealousy and disunity, while godly wisdom promotes peace and unity. That is, in essence, the thesis of what James is saying right here in this passage. That's what he's promoting. Let's look at it verse by verse. Verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. In the meekness of wisdom. So James starts off with a question that can only be answered or only be qualified in one way. James is challenging the community accepted definition of wisdom. What we all would say, wisdom, is this the definition? Yeah, that sounds right. He's challenging the status quo of how we would define wisdom. And wisdom is not necessarily knowledge. And wisdom should not be measured in, as one commentator says, theological terms. How much doctrine do they know? But actually in practical terms. So when James puts these two words together, wise and understanding, what he's doing, he's highlighting and he's distinguishing truth and application. Wisdom knows what is good, but wisdom also concerns itself with how to do the good. Do you see that? That's important. Wisdom isn't just knowing what is right and what's wrong. Wisdom concerns itself with how do we put the good into practice and how do we negate the wrong. So true wisdom is concerned with how we live our lives, how we walk out our faith. So transcendent wisdom gives birth to deeds or a practical application of that transcendent wisdom. This is the way of life that grows in understanding, that grows in knowledge. So from James's perspective, a good life is one demonstrated by humble deeds that are initiated by divine wisdom. Are you following me on this? Nobody shook their head, not one person in this whole place. Usually I gravitate to that one that's like, yeah, I think, or I at least look for the person who's nodding off, you know? And they're like, you know, I'll gravitate. Nobody, nobody's head's moving. So you gotta keep following this, okay? Because this is really important in the way that we live out our following after Christ. Someone can have all the knowledge in the world But if their life is not characterized by the works that reflect someone who's following after Christ, as James talked about in chapter 2, verse 14, a faith without work that is dead, then they're not only lacking a genuine faith, James says you're also lacking a genuine wisdom. A faith without works is dead, you hear me, is not just lacking an authentic faith, It's lacking an authentic wisdom as well. And so James goes on and he compares these two different kinds of wisdom. Look how he continues in the next verse. 14 all the way through 18 really is where you see the contrast. 
But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes from down, comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be, what does it say? Disorder and every vile practice. Does that sound like our culture? But... Verse 17, here's the contrast. That's one. That's that earthly one. That's the one that's easier to get to. Why? Because it feeds my selfishness. It feeds my desire. Verse 17, but the wisdom from above is first, what does it say? Then it is, then it is, then it is full of and good, impartial and what? Man, who does that sound like? Jesus. That's Jesus. That's the character of God right there. Sounds vaguely familiar to the fruits of the spirit that Paul talks about in Galatians, doesn't it? And I think that James is hitting on that same thing. So a false earthly wisdom that's characterized, as James says, by bitter jealousy and selfish ambition is contrasted here with this true godly wisdom that notice what he says is pure, it's peaceable, and it's gentle. So this comparison is used to show the contrasting results of each one of them. So in other words, he gives this comparison of where these two wisdoms come from. This one comes from here. This one comes from here. This one looks like this. This one looks like this. And then he talks about the production of those. The earthly practical wisdom that doesn't begin with a divine wisdom or a transcendent wisdom produces jealousy, selfish ambition, and it is contrary to humility, contrary to the whole foundation of Christian life. So the earthliness, the earthliness of this wisdom, it, this is demonstrating this, this philosophical or this rational approach to how we value things in this world or how we value life. And it, and it reveals that we are not taking God into account as we create those values. So, so if we are coming from that perspective, think about prayer for a moment. Prayers that are connected to this earthly wisdom become ineffective, don't they? Why? Why do they become ineffective? Because they are irrevocably connected to the unstable concerns of this world. So in other words, if we are having this prayer life and we're engaged in this prayer life, but our prayer life isn't being informed by the word of God and our prayer life isn't being informed by the power and the leading and guiding of the spirit, then all of a sudden our prayer life becomes ineffective. Why? Because it is connected to the, the instability of this world and the passions of this world. It's no longer connected to the kingdom of God. That's why James, just a few passages back, says, why are, you, why are you asking for these things and not receiving them? Because you're asking from your own passions. You're not asking them in accordance to the kingdom of God. 
So he's taking a little bit further what Jesus said about you have not because you ask not. And he's saying, listen, some of y'all are taking that out of context. Jesus is talking about someone who's a believer, someone whose only concern is the kingdom of God. And as you pursue the kingdom of God, if you don't have something to accomplish what he's put before you, you have not because you've asked not because God will always grant you the things that you need to build his kingdom. It's when you start asking according to your kingdom that you no longer have those prayers answered. Why? Because you're, you're unstable. You don't have a genuine faith. You're like that person who's doubting in their prayer life. Later in chapter 5, James is going to say, the prayer of a righteous man does what? Avails much. But the key there is a righteous man. Who is a righteous man? A righteous man is a man who builds his life. He who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is a wise man. Do you see how James is putting all of these things together as you move through the book? This isn't just a collection of random thoughts of wisdom. No, James is being very intentional in the way he talks about this. And so it reminds me of Proverbs 14, 12. Look at this passage from Proverbs. I'm sure James had this in mind. There is a way that seems right to a man, but what does it say? Its end is the way to to death, unspiritual, earthly, demonic. Jesus said, the enemy has come to steal, kill, and destroy. But I've come so that you may have life and life to its fullest or life to its eternity. How do you find the life that Jesus talked about that he wants you to have? Through his word, through following him, through giving yourselves over to the precepts of God's word, to listening to how he teaches, to hearing the words of his and putting them into practice. People who boast and brag about having knowledge and wisdom That's one good indication they don't have godly wisdom. Why? Because humility is the mark of a wise person. And and these negative qualities that James talks about, actually, they, they prohibit a person from being considered wise according to what he's laid out here for us. So godly wisdom only comes as a gift from God, not through intellectual effort, not through study. So boasting of the wisdom that you have is one of the clearest signs you don't have godly wisdom. So if wisdom doesn't lead to these works that reflect the character of God, if it doesn't lead to this humility, but instead leads to this selfishness and this jealousy, then it's false. It's earthly wisdom. Watch this right here, okay? False wisdom. Go ahead to the next slide. False wisdom looks like this, or earthly wisdom, same thing. World, flesh, and the devil, right? So, so boasting of the wisdom that you have, the world, the flesh, and the devil. What is the difference in divine wisdom? James says it's heavenly in nature, it's spiritual in essence, and it's divine in origin. Does he not? Look at your passage right there. It's almost like he's going exactly to this passage, exactly to this thought. When we look at the fact that that wisdom that comes from this world is the enemy, 
the world, the devil, the flesh, and the world. These are the things we battle, right? Constantly, we're battling the world. We're battling the flesh. We're battling the devil. And so if we are constantly engaged in that battle and we are not reflecting on the good transcendent wisdom that God gives us, we're going to lose in that battle every single time. Why? Because the very things that we need to counteract our enemy is found in godly wisdom. That's what James is telling us. So James talks about this wisdom being from this direct demonic influence, this earthly wisdom. Isn't that interesting? Because last week we learned how our tongues can actually be the gateway of hell into this world. And now James says that an arrogance of wisdom is a direct relationship with demonic activity. This is an important lesson for us, but especially for our church. What wisdom do we use to operate Everyone who thinks the church or their faith is something to be exploited for their own personal interest, man, feel James's words cut to the core right here. False, earthly, practical wisdom, it leads to jealousy. It leads to selfish ambition. False wisdom might lead us to boast of being full of the wisdom of God, but it also leads us to seek personal happiness. It leads us to seek fulfillment in what we can find in this world and not what we can find in our relationship with God. And this false wisdom can lead us to do things for our own personal success, our own joy, and not for the good of others or for the unity or the harmony of the whole church body. Have you ever heard of a, a man by the name of Costi Hinn? Costi Hinn thought that he had the wisdom of God. Costi Hinn is actually the nephew of televangelist Benny Hinn, who is a healer and promoter of the prosperity gospel. Costi grew up enjoying the lavish lifestyle that came as being a part of the Hinn family and thinking he was led to believe that the reason that they enjoyed their lavish lifestyle was because of the godly wisdom that had been given to them. God had given them wisdom and power to use and to share with others. And so in his book, reminiscing on his upbringing, Costi recounts this, and I quote, We healed the sick, performed miracles, rubbed elbows with celebrities, and got incredibly wealthy. God must be on our side. Before going to college, Costi spent a year traveling around with Benny Hinn on his crusades. And Costi says, again, I'm quoting from his book, that year was a whirlwind tour of luxury, $25,000 a night royal suites in Dubai, seaside resorts in Greece, tours of the Swiss Alps, villas on Lake Como in Italy, basking on the golden coast of Australia, shopping sprees at Harrods in London, and numerous trips to Israel, Hawaii, and everywhere in between. The pay was great. We flew on our own private Gulfstream, and I got to buy custom suits. This was the life that came with the godly wisdom that they had been given. This was a life where they could pursue their wants, their desires, and their ambitions. But little did Costi know that at the time, this life was actually leading to disorder. Things started not quite adding up for him. Personal gain and happiness began to not seem to fall in line with biblical godly wisdom. 
And this life-changing understanding of what wisdom is and what happiness is came when Costi came across Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 12, 30. Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? When he read this and studied it, he was shaken to his core. Why? Because the text was so simple. Not everybody had to speak in tongues, something that he was told was necessary for anyone who was spirit-filled. This started a domino effect that eventually led this man to believe that God's purpose was not to make him happy or healthy or wealthy. Instead, in his own words, I say, I saw that he wanted me to live for him regardless of what I could get from him. Eventually, Costi's eyes were open to the godly wisdom that's full of love and grace and humility. When he came to understand the true meaning and the power of God's love and God's wisdom, Costi says, and I quote, he wept bitterly over my participation in greedy ministry manipulation and my life of false teaching and beliefs. You see, the Christian life is not about happiness. It's not about personal gain. It's not about being jealous for what we do not have. It's not seeking selfish ambitions. It's about love and humility and unity and the wisdom of God that has the power to change and transform our lives. Do you see why James is so harsh against this false wisdom? It's because of the effect that earthly, unspiritual, and demonic wisdom has on the church and those who are a part of the church. Costi now pastors a small Bible church. Well, it's not too small. It's a pretty good-sized church, a medium-sized church. Um, and, and he faithfully teaches God's word from what God has revealed to him about that wisdom. When people have false wisdom and boast in it, the inevitable result is disorder and every vile practice, James says. See, practical wisdom, that practical wisdom that doesn't have a foundation of divine wisdom, it does not promote humility. It promotes arrogance. Therefore, practical wisdom leads to disorder, which is, as one commentator says, bound to break out in churches where people are pursuing their own selfish concerns and partisan causes rather than the good of the body as a whole. Have you ever seen that disrupt a church? I mean, I've seen it before. I've seen churches argue about the color of the carpet where it divides the church. I have pictures from my dad's hometown where there is a Baptist church and they fought over how the building, the new building was gonna be built. So they literally divided the parking lot and built another church right next door to it. It's still there to this day, two different churches and they share the same parking lot because they could not get along and decide how the next building was going to look. Do you see that? Earthly wisdom, chaos. That's what we see. The word here for disorder actually comes from the same root word that James uses to describe the impact of double-mindedness back in chapter 1, verse 8. And it's used also to describe in chapter 3, verse 8, the uncontrolled tongue. So he's talking about these things in a connected way. He's saying that whole idea of double-mindedness that leads to this double-tongued is actually found in a double philosophy. You say that you're about the kingdom of God, but you're living for something completely different. There's no room for this double-mindedness in the church, brothers and sisters. There's no room for people who boast of having wisdom, yet only seek personal, selfish ambition. The result of this double-mindedness will always be disorder. 
So instead of promoting harmony, this wisdom causes disunity and causes chaos. Instead of creating closer fellowship among the brothers and sisters in Christ, it destroys the fellowship and destroys relationship. Such a wisdom cannot be from God. It can't be. That's not the character of God. This was just the beginning. This was just the beginning of the church when James was saying these things. Think about the fact that at the very beginning, at its purest form, they were already struggling with these things. Think about how much more we need to be careful of this. When we think about Russia, I've been in the news a lot lately, right? When we go back to Ivan the Terrible, he had a reign of terror that was marked with cruelty, with jealousy, and with murder. He was a guy who was violent, he was paranoid, and he was jealous. Yet what the history books tell us is that everything Ivan did, he believed was for his own good and was for the good of the Russian Empire. But during one fit of rage, he kicked his pregnant daughter-in-law in the stomach because he claimed she was wearing immodest clothing, and he caused her to miscarry the child. Upon learning this, his son, obviously coming to defend his wife, came in, yelled at him. This leaded to a heated exchange, and he had his son killed. You see, when we think about Ivan the Terrible, the first czar of Russia, he helped actually bring Russia out of the Middle Ages. He was one who helped to transform this, this state into necessarily this world empire. Now, Ivan did a whole lot of good things for Russia, but as his name suggests, Ivan the Terrible, he also did a lot of terrible things, which primarily was driven by his rage and his jealousy and his paranoia. And it's very easy to see how Ivan became this jealous person. Ivan's father died when he was only three, and his mother was allegedly poisoned when he was eight. Not a good start. The death of both of his parents and the fact that the heir to the Russian throne was a young child, created this power struggle in Russia. While these men governed over the land, they starved, they beat, and they neglected Ivan and his brother. So to help cope with the abuse that he was enduring, Ivan would beat small animals. He would throw them off the roof of palaces. When Ivan came to the age of 16, he supposedly marched into the throne room, grabbed the leader of the nobleman, and threw the man to his trained hunting dogs, officially taking the throne for himself and sending a message to all the rest of those noble families. And a clear message it was. And so Ivan was so paranoid about his throne being taken away, so jealous of others who might be better at his job than he was, he killed everyone who was a potential heir to the throne and even upon his death, Russia was sent into what is called in the history books the time of troubles. It was marked by famine and civil unrest and enemy occupation, all because there was no strong central leadership. All this happened because of one man's jealousy, a man who believed that he had the country's best interest in mind. You see what's wrong with earthly wisdom? Is there's no foundation. There's no morality that's set. Whatever you think is best for yourself and for everyone else, that stands because you have the power. You see, this is unspiritual. This is the unspirituality of world management. 
if not reined in by the wisdom that comes from God, this same kind of thinking will dominate the church and it will lead into all kinds of evils just like it did in this man's life. James now moves on and talks about the godly, the spirit-led, the transcendent wisdom and how it contrasts with this earthly wisdom that he's already talked about. Look at verse 17. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. So like faith, wisdom is characterized and identified by the works that a person produces. And James here lists seven different characteristics, very similar to what Paul lists in Galatians 5. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that this morning because I think they are self-evident here. And James claims that true wisdom produces. Though James never even mentions the word spirit, a whole lot of people think that the wisdom that he's talking about and the spirit that Paul talks about are these two different types of wisdom. Notice where he goes in verse 18. He's going to emphasize the production of this godly wisdom. What is the result? Genuine godly wisdom will be what? Peace of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So true godly wisdom produces peace, healthy relationships. And, and so this echoes the relationship between righteousness and peace that Isaiah talks about in chapter three, peace. And the result of righteousness, quietness and trust forever. So, so one of the motivations of this divine wisdom is that we would be motivated to create a culture of peace with thing that is shared within our community, that is shared within our relationships. We all benefit from that. The word peace, actually the Hebrew word shalom, is a very broad and complex term. It's like a, a, br a brick wall not missing a single brick. Or it can mean well-being in life. When life breaks down, our shalom has to be restored. It needs to be made whole again. So what we find is in the Bible, when nations and people started having peace with one another, it didn't mean that they just stopped fighting. It also means that they started working together for the good of everyone involved. That's what a peace treaty was about. So because this peace was rare, Isaiah actually prophesied and looked forward to a future prince of peace who would bring a peace that has no end. And this prince of peace would end a war and would restore peace between God and man that was lost all the way back in the garden. So because of this peace, we have been given and we have received and we have been called to create peace. Have you ever noticed how important it was for the New Testament writers to promote peace within the church? They talk about it over and over and over again. You ever notice how many commands there are to promote peace, to dismiss anyone who would stir up dissension within the church? That's because this kind of peace is hard to come by. Peace takes work because it's not just the absence of conflict. True peace is taking what is broken and restoring the wholeness. And so when we think about all that James is calling us to, we have to remember what the difficulty is. The difficulty is our sin, our sinful nature, because we naturally left to ourselves are jealous and selfish and prideful. And this is what causes the conflicts among us. We elevate ourselves as wiser than everyone else around us. And this leads to disorder. It leads to disunity. And we begin to boast and try and find what we can get for ourselves in it. Godly wisdom should lead to peace, 
but our earthly practical wisdom has only led to disorder and conflict. Since we are unable to truly have the God-given wisdom and peace that we were created for, that Christ came so that we could have, that's the whole purpose of the gospel. We could never get it on our own. So he came and he died and he rose from the dead so that we could be brought into right relationship with God so that now we could be the heirs of a transcendent wisdom that we couldn't have before. Philippians 4, 7 says this, Paul says, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds. How? In Christ Jesus. So when we receive the peace and the wisdom that Christ has given us, we respond not with selfish ambitions, but out of humility and love as we seek to use our wisdom for the good of those around us. What does that look like for you? It could be that you are a small group leader and you allow that wisdom to be shared with them. It could be that you work in the children's ministry. It could be a whole bunch of different things. It could be your evangelism, your discipleship, wherever it is, whatever opportunities God set before you, there is an opportunity to share divine wisdom. Are you serving your purpose to promote wisdom and to promote peace within the church? Or are you sowing seeds of discord, seeds of selfishness, Seeds of arrogance. My brothers and sisters, this should not be so. Let's pray together. God, thank you for a hard word that reminds us that very easily we can get to jealousy. Very easily we can get to envy. Very easily we can get to pride. And all of those things are demonic and unspiritual and earthly, and they bring chaos. Lord, we are in great need of your divine wisdom that makes sense of the world around us so that we can look through your eyes and see the culture and not see all the division, but see all the hope for healing because of the gospel. Not that everyone out there is gonna listen, not that everyone will receive, but Lord, there are so many that will and they are all around us right now, wherever you have placed every one of us. So God, I pray that you would open our eyes to how we can not only receive the gift of wisdom from you, but how we can live it out in practice in our lives. And in doing so, God, honor and glorify yourself and build your kingdom with your church. Don't let us get in your way. Help us to be the builders of the greatest architect of peace that this world will ever see. And we ask this in the precious, holy, sovereign name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.